day old farmer out working your field, hanging down over your tractor wheel. He is truly a Renaissance man. Murray McLaughlin started out as a painter, inspired by Doris McCarthy, who was inspired by the Group of Seven, and then came the music. His first hit single, A Farmer's Song, we'll hear that in a moment. There have been 19 albums, 11 Junos, the Canadian Country Hall of Fame, the Order of Canada, and the Governor General's Performing Arts Award. He is amazing. Straw hat and old dirty hankies Mopping a face like a shoe Thanks for the meal, here's a song that is real So that is very, very familiar music and, of course, a very familiar voice, Murray McLaughlin. It's really great to have you here. It's really great. To be here, and <laughs> wherever we are, we're in space. Well, we're in cyberspace. As I like to point out, it's really great to be anywhere. <laughs> yeah, that's considering the alternatives. The farmer song, you know, honestly, I can never understand how this must feel for a musician. Now that was off your second album. I think it was your first hit single, and that was what early seventies. Uh, yeah, it would have been, uh, 1971, I guess. 1971. Yeah, it would have been 1971. So, and it was uh, yeah, a complete fluke. Yeah, absolutely. What do you mean a fluke? Um, it was the B side of a single <laughs> that was released from an album that I, w- I worked on in the record plant in New York city with, uh, a producer named Ed Freeman who had just done Don McLean's album, American Pie. Oh, okay. So the, uh, the record company was looking for something pop and kind of different and swingy and there was this weird little song on the other side that i i had asked i wrote it actually on the floor of the hotel room in new york city and went in and asked ed freeman if he thought it was okay and he said yeah let's put it on the record so we did and the only reason that it ever saw the light of day was because there was a dj in the ottawa valley named ted daigle who heard the song he just played it he flipped the single over and he went I really like this. And he played it. And the well, phone sure calls. in the Ottawa yeah. Valley. <laughs> yeah. Well, and well, the phone calls came in and the phone calls came in and then the next station picked it up and then the next one and the next one and the next one. It's like how things used to happen. People would phone in if they liked a tune. Yeah. And uh, the rest is history. And the, I think the mafia bought 35,000 singles to put in the jukeboxes across the land. <laughs> is that a claim to fame or something that you, you shouldn't be talking about? Um, I had nothing to do with the purchase, so I can talk about it. <laughs> when you still listen to this song and hear people like me play it back to you and people ask you to play it when you perform, I mean, it's it's 50 years. Do you still like that song? I still sing that song and I sing it principally for, this is going to sound a little corny, but I, I still believe in the message that's in the song. Yeah. It's even probably more relevant now than it was when I wrote it, but the simple message in the song is thank you. Yeah. And I think that people respond to that. You know, they, they still do. Well, and today more than ever, when we've got issues internationally, but certainly here at home, even about food security and access to it, you got to love your farmers who do this. Well, it's kind of interesting, but you know, in, in the concert tours that I was doing shortly before all of this happened, um, the way I would introduce that song, obviously, I would say that the message is thank you, but I went a little bit more broadly than that and said, you know, 
thank the caregiver who's looking after your parents in the right. in the home, and thank you to the person that delivers your mail or the plumber that comes at two o'clock in the morning when your pipes are leaking. Just there's a lot of people who do stuff that actually keeps the world running. So thank them. Don't think so much about the people who actually think they run things. Yeah, and then I'll say back to you. Thank you for creating so much music and pleasure and art that I, I started, I, I started with that in my introduction, which you were kind of an artist first. I have one of the rare privileges of Canadian citizens to have an original Murray McLaughlin on my wall in my apartment. And it is entitled 20 kilometers from Wadena. That is the yeah. official title of that painting. It's that's amazing. Exact, yeah, that's exactly where it was too. <laughs> you were on a little tour, were you? Uh, yes, I called it the Canadian Tire Tour of Canada because I was driving an ancient Jeep CJ that could never pass a Canadian Tire parking lot without wanting a new set of ignition cables or a distributor cap or a windshield wiper motor. Had holes in the floor. It was wonderful. And I would stop every so often and paint. And I just happened to stop 20 kilometers from your hometown and was struck by this amazing um view of this beautiful beautiful golden hill and the mammoth prairie thunderstorm that had been you know the kind that scares people that have been following me for hours and there was one tree up on a hill yeah and i went how in god's name is that tree still standing that's really what captivated me and you know i see that scene i drive to a town nearby called foam lake and i drive here and there and you see those things every once in a while there'll be a just a tree a lone tree that some farmer forgot to take down or it came back up or whatever and it's kind of an extraordinary sight well you see when i think of that tree i think of you well when i look at that painting i think of you because <laughs> you're the artiste but tell us a little bit because uh, uh doris mccarthy was one of your mentors i guess and she was of course inspired by the group of seven so there's that feel to it do, do you have a i don't know what do you call it a genre do you have a style do you even think of it that way um, I didn't mean to, but I guess I do. Uh, Doris was actually a student of Arthur Lismer's. And one yeah. of my other teachers at Central Tech, where I went to art school, was actually a student of Frederick Barley. So there's, you know, there's a kind of a lot of connection there. We yeah. are all children of the children of our mentors. And, you know, when I've gone out to do painting trips, such as the one that resulted in the painting that you have, I had an idea, I had an agenda, I was going to the first thing I was going to do was go up to Red Lake and paint vanishing float plane culture because that's yeah. the place where you've got huge old otters with PZL Polish radial engines on them and you know, and, and kids still rolling fuel drums down the dock hoping to get some seat time. You know, it's, it's that kind of place. Yeah. But on the way there, I got gobsmacked by the landscape at Nick, Nipigon Bay and ended up climbing up on rocky hills and painting landscapes, and it just kept going. And every every time I would think I was going to do something really subjective, I would get gobsmacked by the landscape. And that's, I mean, that's what Canada does to you. It really does. Honestly, we so don't appreciate how staggeringly beautiful this place is. Well, you know, I I like to, people ask me like sometimes how Canadian music is, is different from, you know, music 
from other places. Yeah. And it, it, I mean, the best description I ever heard was from a Japanese university students when I was touring in Japan. Cause he, you know, I said, well, what, why, what's your deal? Why do you think Canadian music is different? And what he, you know what he said? He said, no. uh, he said, a wind blows through it. Wow. Wow. And I don't, I don't think I've heard anybody put it better than that. No, exactly. Because you, well, particularly on the prairies, boy, you feel that. All the time, a wind blows through a lot of things, including the human body. Well, he could have just meant I was full of hot air, but I don't think he did. <laughs> I don't. I don't think he meant that. I don't think so. You've always had this dual side. Maybe it's one side, but it seems to me dual side of of your creativity, your art, which is music and and art. Can can you do them both, or do you when you're in a painting frame of mind, that's what you have to do? And then when you stop that, you do music or how does it work? They're all different faces of the same thing. And I think most people who follow these things uh, are aware that quite a lot of people who are involved in one branch of the arts um, are also yeah. active in other branches. I mean, Joni Mitchell, for instance, a right. painter, most people know that, but so is Tony Bennett. And uh, right. I yeah, love Tony many, Bennett's yeah. art, but Joni was Joni was one of those people who, when she painted, she painted, and when she sang, she sang. Those things didn't happen simultaneously. Yeah, that's. I guess you have a point there, but with me, it here's how it kind of works out. That you know, painting, making music, writing, doing martial arts, or in the past, flying aerobatics, yeah. they're all part of the same thing, and. And the best way I've ever been able to describe it is, you know, only speaking for myself, but I think it's true of a lot of people. We all have two voices in our heads that are always chattering at each other, you know, and you're always in the past or you're always just, in the future. Just, you're just always two? what I did or you're, all, <laughs> you know, it's always like what you did or what you're going to do. And you're, yeah. you're very, so, uh, very seldom are you ever actually in the moment that you're in. And all of those things that I like to do, all those creative things that I like to do, shut that up so there's a really curious peaceful refreshing quality because you're actually anchored in the moment that you're in and it shuts up that chatter is that truer with painting than with music or the, the it's the same it's certainly true of performing music yeah i mean when you're writing verse or when you're writing poetry or writing anything you're very much chattering away at yourself so yeah. uh, I think it's more of the performing side or the actual making of music that stills that voice. I first met you. I don't know if you'll remember this. I'm thinking it must have been the early 80s. You were, perform you were doing um, performing at Telemiracle, which is a fundraiser for the mentally and physically handicapped in Saskatchewan. And this would be... I mean, it's an extraordinary thing because it probably raises more money per capita than many of these things. And we were kind of sitting in the the bar at the hotel waiting to do the next thing. I had my dad with me. And and I was kind of in awe because I was meeting Murray McLaughlin. And you were performing, which is doing what you do. You do so much charity work or good works or fundraising with your music, too. And that was a long time ago. So you've always done that. Well, you know, my, f I mean, it's, it's a bit of a cliche, I guess, but my feeling is that if 
if where you are has been good to you, it's up to you to try and give something back. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm quite sincere about that. I mean, my, the latest thing that I've been doing for some years now, I've been involved with an organization called Room 217 Foundation. Mm-hmm. Which, I watched um, your concert this year. Oh, yeah. That was yeah, kind of cool. Yeah. yeah, it was great. <laughs> we had to change that about three or four different times as the COVID thing developed. It was really right. quite interesting, but everybody was very patient. But, you know, in the past, you know, Jan Arden's been there and Margaret Atwood's been there. All kinds of folks have come and performed and helped us out. But the, the real reason for being involved was to um, basically promote and train you know, professionals, caregivers, et cetera, and the use of music to alleviate suffering for people who had Alzheimer's dementia or in uh, end of life or palliative care. So it became quite a thing that I was involved in. That It's really important. I mean, uh, my mother uh, had Alzheimer's and, and at least once a week, but sometimes more often the musicians in the community, the guys that, you know, played whatever it was, guitar and piano would go to the old folks home and go to the seniors residence and play. And it was a huge connection. And interestingly, most people, if they played war songs, most people remembered the lyrics, even though they might not remember what they had for lunch that day. That's very true. If you're a fan of Oliver Sacks, and uh, yeah, many people are, um, his book Musicophilia, um, yeah, really his 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 uh, observations, his clinical observations, basically proved that the very very last thing to go when uh, the the brain is deteriorating is a very very old part of the brain where music mm-hmm. is stored. It's not actually stored in the prefrontal cortex. It's stored in a different part of the brain, yeah. and the lyrics associated with it are too. So as your memory or your sense of who you are or your acquaintances and such begin to disappear, music can actually lead you back to a place where you, you rediscover yourself again. You become yourself again. It's what, astonishing how it works. What drew you to that? Was it personal? Was it family? Um, I, I was doing... Um, it was actually an event at the recital hall at the University of Toronto. I was invited to actually do a part speech, part musical performance at a seminar uh, for medical professionals. And I was approached by a lady named Bev Foster at that, at that seminar. Um, And she asked me if I would uh, be interested in helping out with uh, room 217 foundation. And so I looked at her and said, well, you know, I've been on a bunch of boards. Why don't I just come on your board? And she went, really? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, six years later, <laughs> there I was I'm still that, on it. You know? Yeah. No, no, that's great. And this is a growing issue. I mean, as we look at the numbers of elderly, like we are looking at a silver tsunami, as they call it, right? This is going to yeah. be a huge issue going forward. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly hoping it isn't, but all indications are that it's certainly a growing concern. I mean, yeah. my, my brother who recently passed away had a, you know, had a vascular dementia and my sister is now, um, basically she's in residence for dementia care now. She has Alzheimer's. So this is very personal for you still? Extremely, yeah. Yeah. I think we all feel that way. If it's touched your life, it never, uh, it never leaves you because it's also just you know what we all have to contemplate in in our own lives. Well, I do the I do the actually it's really kind of funny. I do the Globe and Mail crossword every morning. But my favorite <laughs> my favorite thing is like when I tell real like Globe and Mail people that they go cryptic <laughs> or quick, and I go I go quick, and they go oh. 
They go, oh. Oh, it, it won't work, Mr. McLaughlin, if that's what you think. <laughs> You're going to need to push yourself a little bit. So <laughs> you have always been a very literate writer. And people say that about you. When you like, how do you go through that process of writing lyrics? Of course, it has to rhyme, and it has to, <laughs> you know, match with the music and all of that stuff. How? Wh- which way do you come at it from? I've certainly come to realize that the the biggest rule is there are no rules. Yeah. Uh, you know, the the chief difference I think in methodology for me that's evolved over the years is that you know when i first began to write i thought of a a lyric and a song as being a kind of like a linear narrative that had a like a beginning and a story and an end mm-hmm. um now uh the the methodology i have is i try and get myself out of the way and sort of shut up long enough and see what kind of comes out that's an odd way of putting it but i, I mean i can give you an example if you've yeah, got the time please yeah um I wrote a bunch of songs for an album called Human Rights while I, yeah. I put myself in what I call the rubber room, which is a kind of a, it's like a sensory deprivation tank for writers. Um, but basically you're in the, it's so quiet. You can hear the sound of your blood running through your body and you don't come out of there until you've actually written something. So I just, I start writing the first thing that comes out of my head and I don't really know what I'm writing about, but what I wrote was, was this, um, if I sit too long, my feet will grow into the ground. Then I'll be earthbound like an old and dreaming tree that's dreaming of the sea while someone cuts it down. Got to rise up like a bird, sing my song, but it can't take too long or you might drift away, my love. Drift away from me. Then where would I be? Okay, that just came to you sitting mm-hmm. in a sensory deprived situation. Come on. I was writing a love song. <laughs> but I didn't realize it until I was into it. Okay. It really so, does work that way. Yeah. You know, it's, there's always a kind of a joke about writing songs. Oh, so you're Robert Markle, the, the Mohawk painter used to joke every time I walked in and met him, he goes, so you're a songwriter, eh? Well, moon, <laughs> June, spoon. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I'm kind of roses are red, violets are blue kind of person. right? Well, people <laughs> I write other things, that. but <laughs> Yeah, People I think it's been used. used that. Yeah, I think Roses somebody are red. Yeah. My love, violets are blue. Yeah, and carry um, on. <laughs> How would you finish that one? <laughs> Sugar is sweet, my love, but not as sweet as you. That was okay. The song. That's okay. That's good. That's good. That's close. But that's a strange process. Well, like, it's you know the it is. I can't really describe it any better than that. Yeah. You know, it's it is the process of getting your. Um, like your editorial ego out of the way yeah. so that ideas just form and come and they come spontaneously. So, you know, <laughs> I, I really never know what I'm going to write about when I sit down to write a song, unless maybe I'm working with a partner, which I also do from time to yeah. time. But if I'm writing myself, I mean, it can be, you know, again, in the case of the album Human Rights, there were songs about whether there's, there's the existence of parallel universes or writing about another song is about depression. Uh, bad yeah. times, keep your hand on the wheel. You know, you've been going through some bad times, only time will heal. So there's a whole variety of subject matter that 
well, frankly, ain't Moon June Spoon. <laughs> <laughs> now, the stuff that your current material, and we, we're going to listen to a little bit of it in, in just a minute, but it's much more intentional. When I was talking to you recently, I said, well, you know, it's kind of like protest music. And you said, no, I have a different way of describing it. How do you describe it? Um, well, you know, protest songs kind of have a, a certain connotation right. to them. Um, I, I actually, I, I don't really have another term that I can use that falls easily to hand. It's just mean, sort of reality check stuff like, hello, this is where we live. These are the times we're in. Yeah, because, you know, I mean, the, the two songs that I have early released yeah. that are on, you know, they're making a bit of noise um, are representative of a whole series of things that I have been been writing. And they're they're coming out of me because um, I think there's probably a little bit of anger there that I'm yeah. trying to find a voice to without being strident or um, critical, overly critical. You know, the old saying, you can, you know, you can catch more flies with honey. Yeah. But I mean, I've, I've been deeply affected. Um, you know, I don't know if you want to talk about those songs. Yeah, I now do. Or like, not. I, mean, I think the first one we're going to play is I, I, I live on a white cloud. So before <laughs> we listen to it, just tell us a little bit about what, was going on in your head? I was really, you know, like like everyone on the planet that saw it, revolted by the killing of George Floyd. But I also was conversant enough with the history of mm -hmm. everything from the slave trade to the civil rights movement to understand that it was part of a continuum and then I also began to think about people that I'd known, people that I'd been on boards with. You know, the I think of this guy, his his professional name is Agile. And I was on the on a board with him. He was a really, really smart, smart black man. And one day we were just sort of absentmindedly having, you know, a talk. And he said, Yeah, I, you know, I got another DWB on the way to on the way to the thing today. I said, what? What's that? This is years ago. Yeah. And he said, he said, driving while black. And I went, what? What are you talking about? He said, I'm a wealthy, well-to-do, you know, black man, and I'm driving a nice car. And every time, basically, you know, if they've got not, not much to do and a little time on their hands, they'll yank me over. And it's really not a great experience. And he described mm -hmm. it with some degree of reality. So I thought back, you know, to to agile and his experiences, just his interface with, you know, with uh, how he's treated by the police compared to me. Yeah. You know, I mean, I've been pulled out the window when I was a hippie, but <laughs> nowadays it's yes, sir. No, sir. You know, yeah. have a nice day, sir. So there was the George Floyd thing. There was the past. There was, you know, what's going on with, you know, Caledonia with, you know, first nations people that I've known what they go through. There's just there. And I, you know, I started really thinking about it and went, this there there actually is systemic racism and if i don't really come out and sort of deal with this somehow and look really within me and see what's there without flinching away from it if i don't do that 
that I'm just as guilty as anybody else. And it was in that frame of mind that I wrote the song. It's an apology. That's okay. really what it is. The song is an apology. And uh, I think it's it's a reality check. Let's let's listen to a little bit of it. Of the world, and all the gods are nice to me. Cops all call me sir. I live on a white cloud. Don't worry about tomorrow. If someone else's kid gets killed, it's someone. Sorrow. Wow, <laughs> that's pretty. The guy, um, um, the guy who shot the video for that song, Mark Lestraco, when he first heard it, it he he was like blown away. He's a uh-huh. white man. He has a black son, and he uh, had basically just re- recently had the, the talk. Yeah, in parentheses, you know. And, uh, you know, like there, I don't think there's a black family that doesn't have to have the talk, the talk. with their children. Well, and, and there also has to be white families having that talk I with agree. their children. <laughs> I agree. And, and, you know, I mean, I, I mean, I think I'm, I'm not really about like, you know, we're all horrible. No, I'm all I, about, yeah. I'm, I'm kind of all about, we have to sort of realize that this is exists, that this exists. And what are we going to do about it and how are we going to move forward and make it better? So what do you think about that? Because you and me and a bunch of people we know where we consider ourselves well-educated and open-minded and not racist and all of those things, you know, some of my best friends are, that kind of stuff. How do we get past that into something that's more, I don't know, real? I don't want to beat up on us either. I don't want to say all white folks are bad. I mean, that's not the answer either. No, I don't I don't think all anybody is <laughs> all of anybody yeah. is bad, but I, I think that I think it's really an important time for everybody. It doesn't matter who you are for everybody to kind of look into their their hearts and kind of have a, a look at what's there. And sometimes what's there is really subtle. I mean, one of the examples I like to use is, you know, if you find yourself going, hmm, boy, Barack Obama, he's so well-spoken. There's a <laughs> dot, dot, dot at the end of that sentence. As Joe Biden said out loud, which he shouldn't have, which he's, you know, so clean, as he yeah. once said well, about him. <laughs> why, you know, that's, like that's surprising. So, but I mean, you know, I've, in my life, it, one of the funniest examples, you know, if, if racism can be funny, yeah. a, a year, years and years and years and years and years ago, I stayed. Um, in the Hopi Indian Reservation, they had a Puebla hotel up there mm-hmm. with like no lights, no power, no telephones, no nothing. And I met a young lady while I was there, quite a, a lovely young lady, who took me around to visit her her grandma and another Mesa who was a potter. 
And uh, I, so I went around because there's a, a number of different uh, uh, tribes that live in the area. And every time I would go to another one, if I went to, to the Navajos, they would say, where are you staying? And I'd go, oh, I'm over there with the Hopis. And they go, oh, you shouldn't be you shouldn't be uh, hanging out with those people because they go into town, they get drunk, they don't want to work and their children give everybody a bad name. And, you know, then you go to the Apache one and they go like, Oh, you went to the Navajos. Oh, wow. They go into town and they get drunk and they, they don't want to work and they give everybody a bad. <laughs> it was like, you know, Holy smokes, even here. Yes, so, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it isn't, you know, it isn't, uh, you know, universally one necessarily one race or another. Like any race is capable of being racist. Yeah, And I think, you know, the big trick is I think that when you see it and when you see people behaving that way, you got to call it. And this is you doing that through song. This is, this is your voice. This is me trying. Yeah. I mean, I think that if you throw a pebble in the pond, the ripples mm-hmm. hit, all the, hit all the shores. You never know where they're going to wind up. But, you know, it's my fervent hope that, you know, that, the people who would hear that song are the people for whom it was intended. And I mean, you know, first nations, people, people of color, all kinds of people who have been and to some degree victimized by the way things are. And just saying sorry is a starting point. Um, it's more than sorry. It's accepting the fact that, you know, as upsy topsy turvy and, and wildly difficult as my life has been for, um, at times it's been uh, vastly better by the, by the fact that I was born a white man. I don't think there's any question about that. Even if that means growing up in poverty or growing up with one parent or growing up with illness, it's just still a basic advantage that. I think those disadvantages tend to visit themselves much more on racialized groups than they do on white people. Yeah. So talk about the 1%. Is it the 1% that we all talk about? There was um, a a movement years, some years ago now called, uh, they called it Occupy Wall Street. Right. And a whole bunch of people just kind of camped out of Wall Street and they were screaming, yelling and building tents and, you know, and the media and a lot of people just went, well, they, they don't really have a spokesperson. They, I mean, they don't even know what what they're really there for. They can't articulate why they're there. And I kind of took a look at it and went, I think I know exactly why they're there. Um, their bugaboo was globalism, but what they were really afraid of, I think, and what they were manifesting was a fear that the world was changing in a way that was leaving them behind and making them irrelevant and that they were looking at a future that was much less uh, secure Mm -hmm. um, and maybe a future that was diminished for their children when they came along. So when that happened, I kind of went, I don't think this is going to go away. And uh, as I've been watching the trend in the world, more and more and more for wealth to be concentrated among a, a more select and diminishing elite. Yeah. And more and more and more people are struggling. And, you know, the, the, the middle class is kind of disappearing. So, there, you know, it's the old song, the rich are getting rich and the poor are getting poorer. And, you know, I don't care who you are. I mean, 
go look at what John Kenneth Galbraith told Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the 30s. You're going to have a freaking revolution on your hand if you don't do yeah. something. Yeah. So, you know, it, it isn't really it, it isn't really a difficult question if you do not address inequality of you know economic inequality of that scale, then you're going to have a big problem. Your society will collapse eventually. And it, it's, it's kind of the point one percent of the one percent that we're seeing too. Let, let's just take a, a listen to this for a minute. Uh, you know, it's it's misleading. There's this catchy, nice, warm, fuzzy tune, and you're kind of hitting <laughs> us over the head a little bit. Well, that, see, that's an interesting observation that you just <laughs> made because when I first wrote that song, you know, like all of these things were kind of written in isolation, and basically up, you know, at the at the lake, yeah, and you know, by all by myself, and. Um, when I wrote that song, it was a dirge, like it was a kind of a four beat kind of, it was a total, it was a total dirge and I hated it. I just hated it. I went, oh, for God's sakes, McLaughlin, you know, get a freaking life. And then, uh, you know, I'd had this guitar lick sitting around for ages and I just, I loved playing this guitar lick. It just, I just really loved the way it felt. And, uh, and I kind of did a like, well, what if? And then I yeah. thought, again, you know, you, you can catch more flies with honey. And sometimes it really works to put like a dark idea inside yeah. of a, you know, a kind of a pleasing framework. And then you can sort of slide it in before anybody <laughs> It really notices. works. I'm just saying it really works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I think it did. I really, I was actually going to put out another song, which is actually called Shining City on a Hill. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's that that quote that Ronald Reagan stole. But it, <laughs> I, I wrote this song, Shining City on a Hill, to be hopefully something inspirational for the folks south of the border as the country, you know, descended into crazy schizophrenia. Um, and I thought maybe this could be like an inspirational song for the DNC. I don't know. I'll put it out and see what happens. And then Denise <laughs> said, don't. Don't do that. Don't put that song out. Put this song out. She said, put out the 1%. And I said, Oh, yeah, why? And then she came up with a very reasoned argument. People will like it more. <laughs> <laughs> this is your brilliant wife, Denise Donlan. People will know her from all her different parts in her life to a, a VJ and in the early days. And she went on to run Sony Music in Canada and has done a million other things. Where did you guys meet? Where? How did this love story go? Well, for, you know, for just to, you know, to back it up for one second, I mean, if she gives me a piece of advice like that, yeah, I'm really going to ignore it because no, she was no, the president, yeah. of a, a president of a record company. Yeah, I right? think maybe you so, should listen to her. But yeah, not just yeah. on that, Murray. We're just all saying as a friend, you should listen to her on other things as well. But <laughs> <laughs> No, carry on. 
Um, I, I met Denise. Um, well, I I knew who she was because I had you know been interviewed by her, and I'd right. seen her at clubs and such around town. And she was always you know quite striking, had mammoth rock hair and yeah, a quite charming rubber miniskirt, which I really adored. <laughs> um, but I you know I would see her around, and then one day I was over at the apartment of her boss who was a really good friend of mine a guy named john martin and uh, john was the basically the idea man behind the whole much music all of it like he was he's the guy that kind of built that yeah um and uh i happened to mouth off to john you know draw oh, that girl that works for you i was be- between engagements <laughs> that girl that works for you I mean, she's like really something. She's really smart. And she's really, you know, family. she's really on the ball. You know, she'd be really watch her. She's going places. And then, you know, I, he went slinked off into the other room. And 20 minutes later, she walked in the door because John had called her up on some kind of business subterfuge. Yeah. So John was the, John was the beard. Yes, that's great. And, and it, it, that, that was that, that was the beginning. Yeah, that's it. I mean, we, I mean, my joke is we fell deeply in real estate. <laughs> Because, uh, you know, Denise's mother had told her, don't ever marry a musician. Um, <laughs> well, she probably knew that herself, but obviously didn't pay attention. Well, I had an ace in the hole as far as her mother is concerned, because when her mother was a young woman, she uh, fell deeply in love with a Scottish guy who happened to be a pilot. Oh, you're two for two. I, I was, well, I was one for two. <laughs> <laughs> no. I still had to... I still have to convince Denise. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. But you, I mean, you were born in Scotland. What what brought you to Canada? My mom. Yeah. But, and why did they come? Well, that's, I mean, that's a really long, long story and a complicated one because my mother, mom and dad actually met and married in Windsor, Ontario during the uh, 20s. Oh, okay. They were married. My dad immigrated to the States, a young man about town, had a really good job. He was a machinist. He was working in the auto plants. My mom had gone to, ended up in Windsor living with her mom. She was only like a 16-year-old girl when yeah. she came. And she got a job as a telephone operator. Um, and my dad would come across the uh, river for the parties. It was, uh, <laughs> you know, prohibition, yep. right? Yep. And so Windsor was wet and Detroit was dry. And one thing led to another. They got married in 1927. And then the crash of 29 came. Things are terrible, 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 awful. And my dad decided that he had an opportunity of work back in Scotland in 1937. My mom didn't want to go back because she yeah. hated the class system. But women did what, you know, they were beautiful sad. creatures. Yeah. So off they went just in time for 39 and the war. Wow. <laughs> and then after the war, it was like, you know, 53, we were still on rationing coupons. Yeah. So um, my mom won the battle and said, okay, we're going back. So we came back to Canada in 1953. But my oldest brother and sister were actually born in Canada, in Windsor, Ontario. Okay. That is, I didn't realize that at all. I didn't know that part of the story. When you think about all of that, okay, you're talking about the crash and, of course, the war. And here we are in our own contemporary crisis, the the pandemic, which is changing everything, shaping everything. We don't know what's going to happen. What, how are you dealing? What, what's your sense of this? Well, I, I'm a history nut. And um, it's, it's fairly logical to me, given where the world has been before, 
Um, that whether you look at it sociologically or pandemically or from any other perspective, that the general trajectory is towards better. Yeah. It may get really rough from time to time, but yeah. I mean, compared to what my mother and father went through, well, that's or compared. You know, that's what I have compare, to think you know, too. You know, or if we were experiencing this in some other place other than Canada, there's there's two things, Pamela, that really sort of. I mean, they don't drive me nuts, let's say, but you know, they do kind of get under my skin a little bit. And you know, the the biggest one is when people are not involved in their democracy to the point where they don't go out and take part in it and vote like that just makes me crazy because, you know, I mean, I hate to sound like that, but you know, a lot of people died for that. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and it's, it's not something to take for granted. And I think the events south of the border are really indicative of exactly where that can go if it's not paid attention to. So uh, the other is like being very sort of, Mm. you know, one of the biggest problems that we really have with the pandemic is, I mean, you know, I hate to throw blame around, but, you know, people just like running out of patience and going like, I don't care. Yeah. I got to go shopping. I don't care. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, so we have an enormous spike in cases after, after a holiday weekend. Um, It's, it's unbelievably selfish and short-sighted for people to do that kind of thing right now. Yeah. And uh, I have no patience for it. I think we're seeing that on both sides. The, 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 and I agree a thousand percent. I have no patience for that either. It's not that big a deal to put on a mask. You know, of no. course it, it's uncomfortable, et cetera, et cetera. But that's different than the people who say, I have no patience for this. It's all BS and, you know, I just need to go to work and I, I got to shop and people do need to go to work and people do have to buy groceries and we've got kind of a divide. Of course they do. Um, I think that there are, you know, reasonable safety precautions that can allow those important services to continue. What I'm talking about is people who just yeah. irresponsibly gather in social situations yeah. I mean, the, you know, the best example are like crazy people having car rallies and such. Yeah, uh, It's, you know, they're mass, mass events and joinings, uh, motorcycle things, you know, Port Dover or Sturgis. I mean, where there, there's a spike in cases after those things. It's just, it's completely irresponsible. Yeah. And, um, and selfish is the right you know, word. I, I, yeah. I, I really like to think that you know, what distinguishes Canadians is that they have a working sense of the collective. Mm as well as the individual. I mean, if there's one thing that is different from, you know, universal American culture versus universal Canadian culture is that there is that sense of libertarianism in the United States that, you know, the individual supreme yeah. over the collective. I mean, I'm speaking in broad strokes. No, it is. But, that but really, I, I agree. It's, yeah. it's different here. Yeah. It's different. Here. And there is, uh, we're, we're for better or worse, a more compliant nation too. And uh, sometimes that's to our benefit, but there are always those that aren't. Well, like, yeah. like a like a dutiful husband, Canadian people are compliant <laughs> until they're not. <laughs> but you don't screw with them. That's yeah. all. No, it's true. Don't don't lie to them or screw with them. We 
we started out this conversation today and, and we were doing a bit of an intro about you being the Renaissance man and all of your successes in the Order of Canada and the Country Hall of Fame and all of this. So now you're further down the road and we have an opportunity at this age and stage to look back. Um, how do you define success? Um, <laughs> a friend of mine years and years and years and years ago said this, um, and I agree with it, that the purpose of life is to not become somebody when you're 85 that you would have hated when you were 15. (laughs) So if I still feel like I'm somebody that I would still have thought highly of when I was 15, then that's success. That's a really good definition. I like that. Yeah. Somebody may steal it. Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to listen as we go out to the tin star because it's almost Christmas. Whatever Christmas is going to look like this year, we have no (laughs) idea. Um, But tell us the little, uh, the story, a little bit of background before we say goodbye and take a listen. Sure. Um, Through my perambulations in life i've been through a lot of moves and house fires and floods and i have very very little in the way of possessions that go back to when i was a child and one of the possessions that i have is the star from the christmas tree that my father used to put up on top of it when uh, i was a little kid you know i remember from being six years old, watching him put that very star up on the tree. And when I was encouraged to leave home and seek other (laughs) career opportunities, um, my mother actually put it in my stuff. Wow. So that my first, uh, my first Christmas away from home, it would have a little something, you know, that, so it wouldn't be quite so bleak. Um, And it wasn't because of that. Yeah. So I still have it. Um, and the, the nature of the song is when my son, Duncan, who is now a huge 28 year old, wonderful guy, tall like mom was, he was still a little geezer. He was probably, you know, as the song says, maybe five or six years old. Um, and I was putting the star up on the top of the tree and I saw him looking up at me doing it. And my mind just catapulted back down through the years me being exactly in the same place as he was watching my father do the same thing. Amazing. So it was a, it's a continuity. Amazing story, Murray. It's always wonderful to talk to you like this. I mean, I like having dinner with you from time to time and maybe some year we'll do that again. (laughs) If we're ever allowed to gather. Well, let's, uh, you know, once, once we get the shot, baby. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Murray yeah, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna get a twofer, like I'm gonna get the COVID vaccine yeah. shot and my and my rabies shots at the same time. <laughs> Just in case. <laughs> Just great. Murray, love you a lot. So let's take a listen and Merry Christmas to you and Denise and the family and, and make the best of it. And Merry Christmas to you, my dear, and to all of okay. your friends and listeners. Mm. And have a great time out there watching the snowmobiles go by. <laughs> I will. Let's take a listen uh as we say goodbye to the tin star how old was i five oh six oh so 
The innocent years long ago Father on the chair reaching out so far And crowning the tree with that old tin star And it shines so pretty, diamonds in the sun Nothing but good things will ever come Little boy, don't grow up, stay as sweet as you are So you still gaze in wonder at that old 